and we're Kerber's Kids. The Kids Talk, your monthly graphic novel review. doing in here? They're about to bob for apples on the veranda. We're waiting for Archie to show up. Ah, uh, he's probably running late. Come on, Jughead, there's plenty of food on the buffet tables. No, not yet. I always wait for Archie to make his Christmas toast. Then I eat. It's a Christmas tradition for me. What about you, Veronica? Lots of presents under the tree waiting for you. Oh, half the fun is Archikins watching me open the presents. He enjoys that so much. <sighs> Make room for me. You're right. Christmas just isn't the same without Archie. Welcome back, kids, and thanks for listening as we put a bow on 2021 and close out the reviews of our selections. We will be reviewing today Archie Christmas Classics, which was our December read. Archie's Christmas Classics brings together Christmas stories from the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. And this giant full-color 192-page edition sports an iconic cover by artist Harry Lucy and stories by legendary Archie artists and writers such as Dan DiCarlo, Stan Goldberg, Al Hartley, Bob Bowling, Bob White, Bill Vigoda, Tom Moore, Frank Doyle, and George Gladier. This anthology was first released in September of 2011. And Archie Comics has always been a bit of a mystery to me, frankly. I grew up with Star Wars comics, with superhero comics, with even a subscription to Mad Magazine, and never really had gotten into Archie Comics. It actually has taken the resurgence of that label, of that brand, with the Riverdale series happening, and then the tie-ins with Sabrina, the Teenage Witch, and the popularity of that horror comic book series and that entire Archieverse to kind of bring this back in focus for me. Now, I was highly aware of Archie's popularity in the 60s because of having grown up in the 70s, I got reruns of the Archie cartoon with then the Archie band and, of course, their hit Sugar Sugar and Archie mania that would happen by the group The Archies in the 60s and UHF television and the repeating of classic cartoons in the afternoon for kids kind of passed all of that on to another generation. So I guess my exposure to Archie was just purely through animation, through cartoons, and really not through the comic books. So as I delved into this bit of a mystery, if you will, of Archie, I had a fairly open mind and said, okay, look, let's see what all of this is about. Now, when we get into the review, in Creative Chatter, we're going to do something a little different. I'm going to profile all the artists and the artists only in this series. If we were to have everyone profiled here, that would be a several part series unto itself. So I'll do brief encapsulations of each one of these very talented artists background. What I would like to focus in is the connection with Jack Kirby and this publishing house with Archie Comics. So we will be covering a Kirby Colonel. And I would like to touch on the popularity and appeal of Archie Comics because although I was not hit with that and an immediate fan growing up, I know many of you out there listening were. So I want to give that its proper due. So we will delve into a little comics archaeology. 
And then finally, I'll go over a bit of a summation or reflections on the stories, which do span from the 50s, 60s, and into the 70s. So let's get started with a little Kirby Colonel, a little Colonel of Knowledge about our namesake, Jack. Hey, Wilford, fire up the tractor. Time to harvest another Kirby Colonel. In this Kirby Colonel, we have an interesting revelation. Jack Kirby would team up with Joe Simon in the late 1950s as they were approached by the publishers of Archie Comics to start a superhero line under Joe Simon's editorship. Joe reached out to Jack and Kirby did his last work with Joe Simon when he helped him on the initial issues of The Fly and The Double Life of Private Strong. Now, The Double Life of Private Strong would come out in June of 1959. That would soon be followed by The Fly in August of 1959. And this directly links Jack to the publishers here of Archie Comics through their desire to get these superhero lines up and going. This Double Life of Private Strong was a really interesting conglomeration of many different ideas that Jack and Joe had been throwing around post-Captain America and would find their way into this comic. Simon came up with the fly and the shield, and although they shared the same name, Joe's shield was to be a very different character. After receiving the approval, Joe approached Jack to provide some initial artwork. Now, this work can be properly called collaborations, but the collaboration was nothing like what they had occurred before, and the results looked very different. Kirby had made significant creative contributions to the stories he worked on, and he was doing so with directions from Joe. In the past, the inking of Jack's pencils either involved Jack himself or was done by others in a similar style. But for the new Archie titles here, Jack supplied only the pencils, and all the inking was done in a more modern Silver Age style. Also, Joe Simon had lined up other artists to work on the title, so it's clear Jack was only meant to work on the initial issues, essentially laying down the style foundation, the branding foundation, with which these comic series would perpetuate. That was the true intention here of this Simon and Kirby collaboration with the Archie publishers to establish this new superhero line for them in the late 50s. This is a fascinating little dive here. It is no surprise that the King of Comics would also have some sort of direct relationship with Archie and Archie Comics through the publishers of Archie wanting to start up what? a superhero line, something that Jack had proven time and time again to create iconic characters that would forever live in pop culture history, be adored, and be very valuable, valuable properties over time, as evident in all of his contributions through New Gods at DC, Commandi, and then over on the Marvel side of the house, the MCU, the first family of Marvel, the Fantastic Four, Thor, X-Men, the Eternals, Hulk, you name it. It just goes on and on and on and on. So with that, kids, let's head over to Creative Chatter just for another roll call of who all worked on this series, Archie Christmas Classics. Whoever is this artist and this writer, I must meet them. Creative Chatter. 
Our first artist up is Dan Carlo. He's an American comic book artist best known for his work for Archie Comics and the modernization of the Archie characters. Born in New Rochelle, New York, he attended the New Rochelle High School and Manhattan's Art Students League in the late 1930s. During World War II, he was drafted into the U.S. Army and stationed in the United Kingdom, where he worked in the motor pool while also drawing the weekly military comic strip. After the war, he started out in comic book art drawing for the timely Atlas titles Genie, Millie the Model, Nellie the Nurse, Snappy the Ghost Dog, Homer and the Happy Ghost, and My Girl Pearl. He also created Willie Lumpkin, the Mailman, as a newspaper strip with Stan Lee in 1960. He additionally did cartoons for magazines like the Saturday Evening Post, Argosy, and Humorama. He, DiCarlo, and Lee also drew a comics version of the television radio show My Friend Irma. DiCarlo began his long collaboration with Archie Comics in the 1950s. He drew for a great many titles, including Archie and Betty and Veronica. Monica, and created new ones like Sabrina the Teenage Witch, Cheryl Blossom, and Josie and the Pussycats. DiCarlo modernized the classic Archie characters and established the company's house style. After the death of Archie creator Bob Montana, he also worked on the syndicated Archie comic in the 1970s and 80s. DiCarlo worked for the Archie comics for more than 40 years when he was fired by the company over a dispute about the credits of Josie and the Pussycats. Besides Archie comics, DiCarlo has also worked for companies like Ziff Davis, Better Publications, and Magazine Enterprises. In the 1950s, often in cooperation with inker Rudy Lapick, twin sons Dan and James DeCarlo Jr. also work on the Archie comics, really keeping that in the family. Next up is Stan Goldberg. Stan Goldberg started his career in 1949 at the age of 16 as a staff artist for Timely, which is now Marvel. Where he was in charge of the color department, Goldberg continued in color for Marvel Comics until 1970 and has created the color designs for many famous Silver Age characters, including Spider-Man, the Fantastic Four, and the Hulk. He also illustrated a couple of ghost stories for Atlas titles like Marvel Tales. Goldberg went freelance in 1958 and also enrolled in New York City's School of Visual Arts to study TV storyboarding. In addition, he succeeded Dan DiCarlo as the artist of the Millie the Model title, making it a bit more realistic in the 1963 through 67 period. He also worked as an artist and co-plotter with Stan Lee on the teen title Patsy Walker. Goldberg left Marvel in 1969 and began working on a couple of DC teen titles, including Date with Debbie, Swing with Scooter, and Binky. He began a long collaboration with Archie Comics afterwards, drawing for several decades. His work appeared in titles like Archie and Me, Betty and Me, Everything's Archie, Life with Archie, Archie's Pals and Gals, Archie at Riverdale High, Laugh, Pep, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, the one-shot Archie's Ham Radio Adventure, and the 1990 movie tie-in to Riverdale and Back Again. He was the leading artist on the general Archie title from the mid-1990s to 2006, and from 1975 until 1980, Goldberg drew the Archie Sunday page for the newspapers. Goldberg has additionally drawn gag cartoons for men's magazines, created a classic pop art billboard, illustrated issues of DC's Captain Carrot and his Amazing Zoo Crew series in the early 1980s, and the Jewish-themed children's comic Mendy and the Gollum in 2008. Beginning in 2012, he began illustrating children's graphic novels starring Nancy Drew and the Three Stooges for publisher Papercuts. 
That year, he also drew an anti-bullying educational comic called Rise Above for the organization Rise Above Social Issues. Next up is Al Hartley. Al Hartley was one of America's pioneering Christian comic artists. His faith was of big influence in his many works for Archie Comics in the 1970s, but he already had a large comics output before his conversion. Already cartooning at the young age, Hartley studied at Art Students League of New York. He was a bomber pilot in Europe during World War II, before he began a professional career as a commercial artist in New York City. He had his first publications directly after the war, when he started freelancing for Stan Lee at Alice Timely Comics. He worked for the company throughout the second half of the 1940s the 50s, and most of the 60s. His best-known work for the era is Patsy Walker feature, which premiered in Miss America magazine, but soon got several of its own titles, such as A Date with Patsy, Miss America, Girl's Life, Patsy and Hetty, Patsy and Her Pals, Patsy Walker's Fashion Parade, and Patsy Walker. Hartley also contributed to other romance titles, as well as war, jungle, and horror titles. Among his many credits are Venus, Suspense, Man Comics, Amazing Detective Cases, Men's Adventures, the Black Rider, feature in Wild Western, Lorna the Jungle Girl, Leopard Girl in Jungle Action, Cliff Mason, White Hunter in Jungle Tales, Mystic, Spellbound, Strange Tales, Adventures into Terror, and Mr. Tales. He briefly drew for the Daily Press with such features as Suburbia and Mrs. Lion's Cubs. In the late 1950s and early 60s, Hartley began drawing for Western titles like Kid Colt Outlaw, Two Gun Kid, Gunsmoke Western, and Rawhide Kid. He has briefly done superheroes, drawing the Mighty Thor as as well as some script writing. In addition to his work for Alice Timely, he drew for better publications contributing to America's Best Comics, Startling Comics, and Wonder Comics. Hartley's work also appeared in Nador's The Fighting Yank, Michelle Publications Cookie, The Funniest Kid in Town, ACG's The Kilroys for Ace Comics. He contributed for all romances, Dottie and Dottie and Her Boyfriends. Hartley's work is easy to track because he is one of the few artists that was allowed to sign his work. The year 1967 was a big turning point in Hartley's life, both professional and personal. The last remaining Patsy title ceased publication and his marriage was in trouble. Hartley found answers to his problems in his newly found faith in God. Completely out of work, Hartley found employment by Archie Comics, which he himself thought of as God's work. He injected a lot of Christian faith into his early Archie work and was eventually told that he had to cut back. He began collaboration with the publisher Fleming H. Ravel, who assigned him to do comic adaptations of religious stories like The Cross and The Switchblade, God Smuggler, and The Hiding Place. His religious output for Archie also increased with the launch of the Spire Christian comic series. He co-created new titles as Archie's One Way and Archie's Love Scene. In all, he did somewhere around 60 Christian comics, including at least 19 Archie titles, 6 Bible story adaptations, 12 biographical adaptations, 4 other books or movie adaptations, and nine children's Christian comics. Al Hartley was awarded the Inkpot Award at the San Diego Comic-Con for his entire body of work in 1980. During the 1980s, he wrote and illustrated Christian children's books, and he continued to work for Archie until the mid-1990s. Next up, Harry Lucy. Harry P. Lucy was a classic artist for MLJ Archie Comics. Born in 1913, he graduated from the Pratt University in 1935 as an illustrator. He worked with Bob Montana in a studio on Union Square, New York, in the early 1940s prior to their induction into the Army. Lucy and Montana graphically created the characters in the Archie Comics series. Lucy also designed, among others, Madame Satan in Pep Comics number 15 in 1941 and named the character Betty after his sister-in-law. 
During World War II, Lucy and Montana worked as photo interpreters and map makers in Colorado Springs, Colorado. When he was discharged from the Army in St. Louis, Missouri, he began doing magazine and other types of illustrations for Ralston Purina and Burt's Baker's and Chandler's Shoes. He eventually moved back to New York with his family and was reemployed by Archie Comics Publications in 1949. Lucy was one of the regular Archie comic book artists from the 1950s to the 1970s. He has also drawn for Lev Gleason Publications. Next up, Bill Vigoda. Bill Vigoda studied at the Commercial Art Studios in New York City and served an artist for Archie Publications from the early 1940s until his death in 1973. He did scripts and art on many Archie stories and on several other features, including The Black Hood, Roy, The Superboy, Wilbur, Flying Dragons, Dusty, The Shield, and Wizard. Vigoda has also done advertisement art. He is the brother of Abe Vigoda, a screen, stage, and television star best known for being in the series Barty Miller and playing that iconic character Fish. And last of comic book artists, Robert Bob White. White was best known as the creator of Cosmo the Merry Martian, star of an Archie Comics series of the same name that ran for a short period beginning in 1958. He illustrated the entire six-issue run of the Space Era title, working with writer Frank Doyle. White also worked on Archie's Pure Heart, The Powerful Concept. The Fly, and the 1964 New York World's Fair Archie giveaway. He was let go by Archie after working on Tippy Teen for Tower, at which point he moved into other lines of work, including a stint as an artist at United Artists. Now, let's head over to a little comics archaeology and discover the gem that is Archie Comics and its long-lasting appeal and legacy to comics readers. And now, the Riverdale Carnival presents the Archies. Take care of the kissing booth while we're singing, Sabrina. Okay, everybody, here we go with our new hit record, Sugar, Sugar!
our comics archaeology segment, I really want to probe into the pop culture appeal of Archie and how this property has been able to perpetuate itself for so many years. This is over 70 years of Archie comics now, actually heading into 80 frankly, because the reference here for comics archaeology comes from the fantastic website, 13th Dimension, Comics, Creators, and Culture. And this was a post on February 24th of 2014 by Ed Cato. And Ed reflects on Archie Comics' legacy in his love letter to Riverdale's finest. And he was actually able to interview at various different times members from that Archie Publications family and get their reflections on the Riverdale gang and how this series has been able to reinvent itself and make itself relevant from one generation to the next. And I, not having caught the Archie bug growing up, have keen interest in this because I frankly just didn't get it. I'm like, what is this appeal to Archie's? Yeah, the car cartoon as a kid was amusing. It was great. They had a band. They sang. It was it, it was fun, but I just, I wasn't getting it. So I think this will begin to shed some light on the whole situation. So this comes from Victor Gorlick, who is a longtime Archie employee and is currently serving at that time, back in 2014, as Archie Comics Editor-in-Chief and Co-President. He was instrumental in creating the magic and keeping the storylines fresh and exciting for so many years. And Victor has a one-of-a-kind perspective on Archie and the reasons for Archie's success. And Victor says, What I like best about Archie Comics is that we've been entertaining new and old readers for over 70 years. I see parents and grandparents buying Archie comics for their children and grandchildren. They buy them not only because they grew up reading Archie, but that they know our stories are good, clean, wholesome fun through the medium of humor. He says that the key to Archie's success is not complicated. Why I think Archie is so enduring and endearing is simple. Archie is about the importance of home, family, and friendship. The town of Riverdale, where Archie and his friends live, is a nice, safe place to go whenever you need some cheering up. The characters are warm and friendly and care about each other. They live in a world that used to be, might be, or is the way we would like it to be. Okay, this for me is a revelation and really hit home. This says to me several different things. Archie... And Riverdale and these characters, for a lot of folks, strike a massive amount of nostalgia. If you had a positive experience growing up with very close friends and really cherished those relationships, I can see where Archie Comics, very similar to Archie and his whole gang, would resonate. It would be something familiar. It would be comforting. For those that aspired for that, that didn't quite have it and were longing for it, I could see where Archie Comics were a welcome escape, but very much grounded in the reality of youth and youth culture. I understand why I wasn't drawn to this. That was something that I was looking for an escape from. I was always looking for that alternate universe, that superhero universe, that fantasy universe, that sci-fi universe. 
I wasn't looking for soap opera-ish drama dealing with youth and their relationships and the problems of dating and things of that nature. Very similar issues that, frankly, why I wasn't drawn initially to Spider-Man growing up. They always said the appeal to Spider-Man was that he was well-grounded in high school and youth culture and had problems. And, well, that was fine, but I wanted to escape those problems personally. So I understand now why Archie Comics has so much appeal to folks, but also at the same time, why it didn't initially connect with me. So with that framework here and these fantastic reflections by Victor Gorlick, let's head over to our literary aisle for a review of Archie Christmas Classics. Arlando, there's our literary aisle. Okay, Archie Christmas Classics. This was actually a very fun read for December. Very festive of the season. It is filled with a lot of humor. I will say that because it spans the 50s, 60s, and 70s, much of the material is dated, meaning very grounded in the times. So, for instance, we have reference to cast iron Christmas tree and asbestos decorations. Right there, folks, out of the 50s, there was this whole movement for aluminum Christmas trees or metal Christmas trees and these asbestos ornaments. I mean, nowadays, my gosh, they're, you know, tenting and closing whole buildings that they're having to bring down that had asbestos materials in there for insulation there, those carcinogens. It's just absolutely horrible. I mean, it was believed at one time to be a great insulator and a fire retardant, but holy moly. Right then and there, what appears to be new and modern and hip and of the day, it actually comes off as being very dated. The circumstances of the characters, the gender roles of the main characters, the expectations, societally speaking, within these comics are very much rooted in stereotypical 1950s values. We really would not see an update of these characters until we headed into a later era here of Archie reimagining itself. So this stays true to the roots, this collection here. And as such, we open up with our first story called Slide Guide. And this one is done by Frank Doyle and Harry Lucy. And Reggie and Archie bid out do each other, basically sledding. Pretty simple story. Then we're on to Snow Mistake. And this is again another Frank Doyle with Bill Vigoda. And in this one, you see two rivals unite when Veronica decides to date another boy. And they try to enrage their schoolmate, Big Moose. And it's, again, another pretty simple story. It's about teenage love and angst and jealousy. Then there's Firebugged. And this is, again, another Frank Doyle story, but with Dan DiCarlo. And Archie attempts to prove Christmas trees are fire hazard. And this is the one where Archie ends up setting the Christmas tree on fire of Veronica. And Veronica lodges. Dad gets very, very angry to the point that even in the comic book page, he ends up patting down Archie to make sure he doesn't have any weapons or anything more on him that could burn up another Christmas tree. And ultimately, Veronica's dad decides on a cast iron Christmas tree with asbestos decorations. (laughs) So this one's a little wild, a little wild. And then we follow that with Come On To My House. 
This is a Frank Doyle, Bill Vigoda piece, and this details just a minor tiff between Betty and Veronica as they are battling over who will host Archie on Christmas morning. Again, the, the theme throughout these are just very simple stories. A lot of it having to do with jealousy and these love interests and relationships amongst these teens. Not even a moose leads off with some foolish pranks and a naive giant discovers the danger of telling people there is a Santa. This is a Frank Doyle and Bill Vigoda piece. Very fun, enjoyable. Then there's those Christmas blues. Now, this is a different kind of story with Bob White. This actually sees Archie's parents begin to lament that they have been basically tossed to the side by Archie. Really not the apple of their eye anymore, their parents. And they're kind of lamenting the fact that they missed their young boy who loved spending Christmas with them. And they see him maturing into a teen and favoring the girls in his life, and particularly Betty and Veronica, and wanting to grab their attention. And everything now revolving around his social scene and less of the family. Then Archie's job as guardian of the year's presence results in a catastrophic mess in the gift collection. And then Betty and Veronica experience a calling by boy slobs in Do No Evil. This is a Doyle and DiCarlo piece. Archie and Reggie then clash over a present for Veronica in Go For Broke, another 1950s entry. Very, very simple story. And that's followed by Boxed In, which sees a red-headed Archie Andrews here outsmart himself in his quest for the perfect present. And that, again, is very, very simple. Then there is R is for Rooked. This is by DiCarlo. He sees a reluctant go-between Jughead essentially screw up a mission to spy. And Ronnie's buying Archie's Black Book Bonanza, also by DiCarlo, discloses how Moose comes to believe he's now one of Santa's official helpers. Then there's a bunch of mischief and intrigue when Doyle and White puts together a Christmas tale as Ronnie promises a month of dating exclusively for whoever chops down the biggest charity Christmas tree. As you can see, these are the themes that seem to permeate throughout this book. The illustrations here are enjoyable. The art is very much steeped in that transitional phase between the Golden Age and Silver Age comics. The color palette being limited by publishers' inks, as far as the color palette is concerned at the times, so we get more sophisticated inks over time and the ability to get more nuanced. So a lot of primary colors here, which really make it pop off the page. So that screams Golden Age. What screams heading into Silver Age is a little more of the detail as far as the facial expressions are concerned. Although I don't believe there is a direct manga influence, I will say in Archie Comics that the eyes tend to be a little bigger than what you see in the typical superhero fair that came out in the golden age that then we would transition to in the silver age the archie signature look is very well maintained by all of the artists who put their impressions on this series the other thing which is very cool in here this series contains a whole section of poster art that was done by the art teams of the day and are included in this collection, which are festive pinups 
of the Archie gang for display in a kid's room. Everything from fashion styles by Betty and Veronica to little vignettes, single page, full page scene of Archie decorating a Christmas tree or putting a present underneath the tree or something else involving the gang. For instance, in this one Archie pinup, but that's what Jughead wants for Christmas. Archie, I'm sorry, but I'm I'm just not going to put hamburgers under the tree. So it's a little bit of a vignette there, and that's between Archie and Veronica. Veronica's dad in the background. Again, this is the same family who, in an earlier Archie story, Archie had burned their Christmas tree to prove that they're a fire hazard. In another pinup, you have fashions by Betty and Veronica, and each are displaying the fashions of the day. They're very much rooted in the 60s as far as these fashion styles are concerned. A lot of these look like the patterns I remember that my mom had. My mom was into sewing in the 70s, and some of these patterns from the 60s into the 70s you could buy and then make your own clothes with. And many of these fashions just scream of that in these pages, and those are fun little pinups. And I can see where, based on these pinups, ups and the stories involved in Archie, how perhaps maybe this was one of the few comic books that appealed to both a male and female audience in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And from that standpoint, in its inclusivity, it strikes a very positive chord. It, again, is very dated. So it's a product of its times, plain and simple. I'm not going to overanalyze it because truly you have to take work in the context with which it was made. And from that standpoint, I can definitely see the appeal for both boys and girls, young men, young women, and then into adulthood, if you grew up with this from a nostalgic standpoint, really gravitating towards Archie Comics. Now, it was discussed here when we were in comics archaeology about the wholesome nature of this series. There is some double entendres in here. There are definitely some objectification of women in here. There's no doubt about that, particularly not only how they're drawn, but how Archie and Jughead and the gang kind of interact with beautiful women. But I think the thing to take into account is these characters, the way in which they teamed up, would interact with one another, were ultimately respectful of one another. There was a lot of love displayed there with regard to friendship and then, of course, the relationships too. Enough so that there was a whole segment of Archie comics that ended up being Christian-based and would have biblical stories and parables related in them. I've never seen one of these. I've heard about them. I know some folks were really, really into them, particularly down south. If in the Bible Belt, if you weren't allowed to read superhero comics, but you could read Archie, and particularly the ones that were more church-based and Christian comics. Archie Christian Comics was a licensing that Archie Comics did with Spire Christian Comics. So Archie really has a diverse storied lineage here, reaching out to folks with different stories and trying to connect with various different segments in a broader readership. Another pinup here has one where you have uh, Betty Cooper. I thought you came here to help us decorate for the Christmas party. I'm testing the mistletoe. And there's Archie there with, with Betty underneath the mistletoe. And then you also have uh, Veronica there essentially chewing them out. And another one, you have a Mr. Weatherby pinup. 
I've decided to let Mr. Weatherby help us decorate the tree if he promised not to break anything. I'm afraid he's going to break more than his promise. And there you see Mr. Weatherby very precariously having an ornament in hand, falling off a ladder, and just heading into utter disaster. So there are many of these comical situations that are not only in these pinups, but smattered throughout the stories here. There is a sentimental tearjerker, and it's called It's Not the Gift, where Archie saves a young kid from a tragic Christmas. There's also Temptation. That one is done by Doyle and Lucy from 1974 and has Jughead arguing that even Reggie can't resist the good feelings of Christmas. There's more and more of these stories that are very simple. They're very all-ages fair and wholesome. And these carry their way through the 1970s. I was recently taking a look at comic book sales throughout the years, and it's been very challenging to find that data on a consistent basis because of the different ways in which comic book sales were being tracked before you had the direct market and scans from stores. Again, you had a lot of conflicting numbers coming out of, particularly the big two is Marvel and DC, because they would self-report their sales, and they had to to their investors. But what's very clear throughout the 50s, 60s, and 70s is that Archie was a consistent seller, did very, very well. And it wasn't until you got into the 70s and then well into the 80s that Archie fell by the wayside. So Archie was a very strong seller in the 50s and 60s and then into the early 70s within the eventual dominance in sales, this is, being DC and Marvel taking over there by the late 70s and into the 80s. All in all, I say that Archie Christmas Classics is a fun read. It's a very light read. You can take it one story at a time. It's only about eight pages in total. Panel breakdown, for the most part, follows the convention of a five, six, sometimes... I think there's one one time in here that I actually ran across a, a nine panel. So it really has varied based on who the art team has been at a given time, been tasked with putting together the story. And from that standpoint, it's not all that long. They're pretty easy to read and light fare. Well, kids, we hope that you have enjoyed our selections from 2021 and will be with us throughout the year in 2022 as we continue down our graphic novel reading list and comics trail on Kirby's Kids. This is going to be a perfect Christmas. There's nothing wrong with gifts and a big fancy dinner, but the best thing about the holiday season is sharing time with your loved ones, making someone smile with your generosity, and appreciating all the fine people in your life. That's something I always try to remember when I celebrate Christmas in a little town called Riverdale. Merry Christmas to all, and to all a good night. We're Kirby's kids. Exactly.